Almighty God, our Father, You gave us Your Son to be our Savior. He was tempted by Satan. But unlike Adam who was tempted in the garden and fell, Jesus stood firm in the wilderness and did all Your holy will. He suffered for us, becoming a sin offering and bearing our curse so that we might be forgiven. And so we are gathered here today, Father, as Your people, on the basis of His sacrifice and to celebrate His victory and to claim the benefits that are ours in Him by faith. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the everlasting love You have shown to us in Christ Jesus, choosing us in Him from before the foundation of the world. And in the fullness of time, sending Him into the world to work out our salvation. We thank You, Lord, for everything, for every gift You give to us. You are the giver of every good thing. But especially, Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Son, our suffering Savior, our reigning King. The One in whom we have abundant life and forgiveness of sins and all things pertaining to life and godliness. We thank You for Christ Jesus and in His name we pray. Amen. We have read a number of passages this morning that refer to baptism. And I want to read one more. uh, This time from Romans chapter 6, beginning in the first verse. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for all Your gifts to us. We thank You for the gift of Your Word. We thank You for the gift of baptism. We thank You for the gift of the Lord's Supper. Father, You give Yourself through Your Son and by Your Holy Spirit to us through these means. May it be so today. May You speak to us now that we might cling to Your Word by faith. For in Your Word we find life and life abundant. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, In the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we meet a ten-year-old boy, Eustace Clarence Scrub. Now, of all the characters we meet in the land of Narnia, he is surely the most unlikable. In fact, he is so unlikable, the narrator tells us he almost deserved a name like Eustace Clarence Scrub. Eustace is in Narnia, but he doesn't really belong in Narnia. You see, his parents were... Uh, very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians. They were teetotalers. They were pacifists. 
Uh, they never read to Eustace the right kind of books when he was growing up to ready him for visiting a place like Narnia. Eustace could only read textbooks, uh, never any fairy tales. Uh, they spoiled him rotten. In fact, you might say they were the very first helicopter parents smothering their child with all kinds of rules and regulations supposedly to keep him safe. But when Eustace gets drawn into Narnia, when he gets magically sucked into Narnia, uh, he finds himself completely out of place. The first thing he wants to do is file a lawsuit. He's got a very litigious mindset. When he's on board this ship, the Dawn Treader, uh, he gets he gets caught stealing extra rations for himself. They've got a limited supply of food and water. He steals some for himself. He is this self-centered scoundrel. He is a brat. He's not chivalrous. He doesn't think that, 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 that boys should protect the girls on board. All he does is gripe and complain and whine. At one point, the ship stops on an island and Eustace wanders off on his own. And, of course, nobody misses him. They're actually uh, quite glad for him to be away for a little bit. He was such a beastly little boy. And as he wanders around, he happens into the cave of a dead dragon where he finds all kinds of treasure, gold and diamonds and jewelry. And all his greedy heart can think about is what he's going to do with his newfound treasure, especially since there are no taxes in Narnia. Okay? Leave it to Eustace to be thinking about taxes. All he's thinking about is this greedy, is this, is this treasure. All his greedy heart can do is imagine all the ways he'll use this treasure to his own advantage. But as he's thinking about this, he gets drowsy and he drifts off to sleep. And when he wakes up, he discovers he has become a dragon himself. Now, he doesn't actually know it until he sees his reflection in a pool of water. And if you haven't read this, you need to read it. The, 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 the self-discovery that Eustace goes through as he realizes he has become a dragon is uh, a few of the most brilliant pages of storytelling you will ever read. I won't recap that for you. But basically, it is as if Eustace's sin has finally caught up with him. He has become on the outside what he was on the inside all along. Well, finally, on their sixth day on the island, something happens. Eustace is still in dragon form, and he sees a lion coming slowly towards him. And finally, this lion gets right up in his face and looks right in his beady dragon eyes. And, he, and without speaking a word to Eustace, he tells Eustace to follow him. And so this lion leads and Eustace follows, and they climb up a mountain to a high place where there is a garden with fruit trees and a spring with clear water bubbling up into a pool. And then the lion tells Eustace to undress. Which Eustace takes to mean that he should shed his scaly dragon skin the way reptiles are known to do. But when he sheds his skin, he finds he's still dressed like a dragon. And so again, he peels his skin off only to find that there's still dragon skin underneath. And so he does this again and again. And Eustace begins to realize he is dragon all the way down. He is dragon through and through, and he cannot undragon himself. Well, finally, the lion steps forward and with his claws rips the skin off of Eustace and then throws Eustace into a pool of water. This water bubbling up from the spring on top of the mountain. And suddenly, when Eustace is thrown into that pool, he is born again. He becomes a new person. He is a boy again. But he's a different kind of boy than he was before. 
He starts swimming and splashing in the water with great joy. He's so excited to be relieved of his dragonness. And the lion then pulls him out of the water, dresses him in new clothes, and sends him on his way. Now later on, of course, Eustace comes to discover who this lion is. He is Aslan, the high king, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, the creator and savior of Narnia. Now there's no doubt what C.S. Lewis meant by this story. This is a baptismal story. It's meant to show us what baptism is all about. Eustace has to learn he can't save himself. He's got to learn he's beastly, he's dragonish, and he can't do anything to save himself or transform himself. Only Aslan can change him. But how does Aslan do it? Through water, through a washing with water, through baptism. A baptism in which Eustace is given new clothes and a new identity and a new orientation in life. And so the post-baptismal Eustace is now no longer obsessed with the treasure. In fact, he actually goes back to the others. He's no longer consumed with this greed that he had before. He goes back to the others and he confesses to them how beastly he had been. And when he gets back on the ship, he begins to serve and do his share of the work. He learns to be a part of the community on the ship. His baptism by Aslan marks out the beginning of a new life. And it's so interesting, at the close of that chapter in Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, the narrator tells us, this is a quote from the very end of the chapter, it would be nice and nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He still had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of these I shall pass by. The cure had begun. And that's really what baptism is all about. It is the beginning of the Christian life. The beginning of something new. The beginning of the cure for our sin. Our dragon. I think C.S. Lewis, as he certainly would have known from his experience in the Anglican church, and certainly he knew that a lot of the traditional baptismal declarations, like the one that I read to Thomas Eaton this morning right after his baptism, those declarations say something like this. God helped the one baptized to live his whole life according to the good beginning made here in baptism. Baptism is a beginning point. It's a starting point. It's the beginning of the cure. Eustace begins to live it out in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He does begin to live according to this good beginning made in his baptism. Oh, sure, he still struggles with those dragon-like tendencies from time to time. But a new beginning in his life has been made and he's going to live it out. And so actually, when you come to the very end of the Chronicle of Narnia series in the very last book, Eustace is one of the seven friends of Narnia who is robed in royal attire. He becomes a Narnian hero. Now what Lewis and his brilliance has done in that episode in Voyage of the Dawn Shredder is give us really, I think, the New Testament's theology of baptism in a nutshell. He's given us the New Testament's theology of baptism in the form of a story. In fact, it's interesting, at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Aslan explains to the children who are coming back into our world that there is a way to meet him in our world, but to do so, you have to cross a river. In other words, just as Eustace 
was undragoned and came to know Aslan for who he was in the water of that pool. So in our world, you come to know Aslan, known in our world as Jesus, you meet him in water. You have to pass through water to meet him. You meet Jesus, our Aslan, in the waters of baptism. What does it mean to be baptized? What does it mean to live as a baptized person? What privileges come with baptism? What obligations? What gifts and promises are attached to baptism? Uh, Certainly this morning we can't look at every baptismal passage in the New Testament, but I want to do a kind of flyover survey and look at a number of these baptismal texts in the New Testament and see how the first Christians answered those questions. And I want you to realize this is not just a kind of academic exercise so we'll know more about baptism. It's really so we can live more faithfully as God's baptized people, as His covenant community. Because baptism, rightly understood, is of great help in dealing with issues of sin and shame and guilt. There are great resources in our baptisms we can draw upon to help us deal with these issues. Baptism assures us and comforts us It helps us answer questions like, who am I? And how am I to live? How does God want me to live? Let's consider some of these passages. Start with Matthew 28, the Great Commission passage we read as our Gospel lesson this morning. There Jesus commissions His apostles to go and make the nations His disciples. And how are they going to do this? by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them all He has commanded. He gives them a promise that as they go into the nations, baptizing and teaching, He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ's presence accompanies them as they go forth to baptize and to teach. And Christ wants the nations to be baptized. Christ's intention is to flood the nations with the waters of baptism. Not a flood of judgment like in Noah's day, but a flood of grace. Jesus is, I think, drawing on Isaiah 52.15 where the prophet predicts the Messiah will sprinkle, that is, baptize many nations. In Matthew 28, Jesus gathers His apostles to Himself and He says, go make it happen. Go sprinkle the nations that the nations might be cleansed, that they might be mine, that the nations might become my disciples. See, that's what baptism is. Baptism is the beginning of discipleship. In baptism, Father, Son, and Spirit claim you as a disciple. They make you their own. They make you a member of their family. To be baptized is to become Christ's disciple. Christ is present with His people as they go forth to baptize and teach. He's present in the water and He's present in the Word. In baptism, He claims us as disciples through the Word as it's taught and preached. He forms us and matures us as disciples. And as we will see, in baptism, God makes promises and gives gifts. That's really foundational. But you know, and we're going to talk about that more in just a minute, but I think here too we see that in baptism, the one baptized also makes promises to God. He promises to live and learn as a disciple. That's why when Thomas Eaton was baptized this morning, his parents promised to disciple him, to raise him as a disciple. His discipleship began today in the waters of baptism at the font. 
His discipleship has now begun. His parents will continue it as they nurture him in the faith and in Christian practices and in the Christian way of life. As they discipline him when he deviates from the Christian way of life. See, we don't baptize children for sentimental reasons. We don't baptize children because, oh, you know, babies are so cute and it'd be great to have some way to get them in front of the congregation. No, we baptize babies because this is their entrance into boot camp. And from this day forward, this child is going to be trained as a disciple and as a warrior. So he can learn to fight manfully under the banner of the cross against sin and against Satan. Now when we come to the book of Acts, we actually see this happening. We see people actually getting baptized. We see the church carrying out this mission of baptizing the nations. You see it in Acts 2. We read a little piece of this. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching to those who have gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So this is 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, 10 days after His ascension. The Spirit has been poured out this very morning on the disciples. And now Peter, filled with the Spirit, begins to preach. And he preaches the Gospel. And those who hear this Gospel proclamation cry out. They're convicted by it. They cry out, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children to those who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. They cry out, what shall we do? Peter says there are two things they must do. First, they must repent. Okay, we know what that word means. They, they must repent, which means they must turn their lives around. They must turn from false hopes and false faiths to put their trust in Christ alone and to obey Him. They've got to reorient their whole lives around the crucified one. The very one they crucified, they're now to serve as their Lord and King. That's what it means to repent. You reorient your whole life around Jesus. So He becomes your your center and and, and your chief priority in life. He becomes your king and your captain. That's one thing they must do. The other thing they must do is they must be baptized. And Peter explains, when they are baptized, two things will happen. Two things will happen when they are baptized. In baptism, they will get a promise and they will get a gift. The promise is the forgiveness of sins. The gift is the Holy Spirit. Consider each of these. In baptism, God promises forgiveness. That's what baptism is. God's promise of forgiveness. In baptism, God washes our sins away. Baptism is a cleansing. In baptism, God makes His promise of forgiveness public and personal. You can hear that declared to everybody in general. In baptism, it becomes your own. You're baptized. You're washed with the blood of Christ. As many of you know, my family lived for several years in Texas. And when you live in Texas, you can't help but pick up on a lot of Texas history. And uh, there's a lot of interesting Texas history to know. Uh, One of the most colorful and, and controversial and fascinating Texans of the 19th century was Sam Houston. Of course, the the city of Houston is named after Sam Houston. Uh, Sam Houston eventually rose to prominence as a senator and as a governor. But for much of his life, he was a wild and wretched frontiersman. You know the kind of people who went to Texas back in the day, right? Well, Sam Houston was one of those kind of guys. 
He had several failed marriages. He drank too much. Uh, he gambled his savings away. He cheated. He engaged in shady business deals. Uh, he was known for having a short temper, an itchy trigger finger. But once when he heard one of those traveling evangelists, a, a traveling preacher coming through town, he heard a gospel message and he was convicted of his sin and of his need for Christ. And he repented and he asked to be baptized. And this traveling preacher, of course, was baptizing people down in the river. And so Sam went down into the river to meet the preacher to be baptized. And after the baptism, as Sam Houston and the preacher were walking up to the shoreline, the preacher turned to him, and of course he knew that Sam Houston was a very notorious sinner. He turned to Sam and he said, Well, Sam, your sins have all been washed away. And as Texas folklore has it, Sam replied by saying, Then God help the fish. Right? He knew he had done a lot of sinning, and so he was apologizing to the fish for having polluted the stream. Alright, now all kidding aside, you know, Sam Houston was not some great theologian. I'm sure that pastor who baptized him was not either. But they were exactly right biblically. What does God do in baptism? He washes away our sin. Baptism is transitional. It's, it's pivotal. You move from being under condemnation to now being justified. Baptism is the public marker of God's forgiveness. Again, it personalizes God's promise of forgiveness. Forgiveness and baptism are linked again and again in Scripture. It's interesting later on in the book of Acts when Saul, of course also known as Paul, when Saul is baptized, he describes it this way in Acts 22. Ananias, who is the prophet, the servant of the Lord, who will baptize him. Ananias says, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There it is. Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. Your sins are washed away in baptism. We confess this in the Creed, in the Nicene Creed every week. There is one baptism for the remission of sins. That's what baptism is for. That's its purpose. Through it, God washes us clean. Through it, God remits our sin. Now, you know, in the history of the church, there has been some confusion about this. Actually, I think the biggest confusion is not what you might expect. The biggest confusion in the history of the church is this. Some, especially in the early church and in the medieval church, said, okay, well, fine, baptism, baptism washes away sins I have committed before I get baptized, all those sins I committed up to the moment of my baptism, but what about those sins committed after baptism? You know, actually in the Middle Ages, the church developed, a, a, they called it a sacrament, it wasn't, uh, but they developed what was known as penance as a way of dealing with post-baptismal sins. Penance was a system of works that would be assigned by a priest. A priest would prescribe a certain number of works for you to do, specialized works, like go say uh, a certain number of Hail Marys or Our Fathers, or go climb the, 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 the stairs of the castle on your knees, something like that. Works that were designed to supplement baptism, to deal with sins committed after baptism. You see the same kind of mentality at work when people would sometimes delay baptism. For example, um, Constantine, or there, there are other examples of this from the early church. Those who would delay baptism even to their deathbeds. 
because they were so afraid of committing sin after baptism. Uh, Not too long ago, I read an Eastern Orthodox theologian who said sins committed after baptism are, quote, washed away by our tears of contrition. So the water of baptism deals with sins committed up to that point in your life, but for any sin after that, it's your own tears, your tears of contrition. That's the water that will wash away sin. Okay, that's all wrong, completely wrong-headed. The promise of forgiveness God makes to us in baptism is a perpetual promise. It is not tied to the time of baptism's administration. In a way, this is what the whole Protestant Reformation was about. Was coming to understand the promise of forgiveness God makes to us in baptism is a perpetual promise of forgiveness. God doesn't just wash away pre-baptismal sins in the waters of baptism. He gives us a promise that washes away and cleanses us of all sin, past, present, and future. It is a once and for all washing in the blood of Christ. This was part of Martin Luther's great rediscovery of the Gospel. And of course, if you know about Luther's life history, you know even after he rediscovered the gospel of justification by faith alone, he continued to struggle with feelings of guilt and shame over things he had done. A feeling of guilt that nagged at him. Shame he just couldn't shake. But you know what his strategy was for dealing with those feelings of guilt and shame? He said, when our sins oppress us, we must retort, but I am baptized. And if I am baptized, I have the promise I must be forgiven. He said, every time I struggle with guilt, when guilt plagues me, I remind myself of my baptism. John Calvin, you know, he's one of our great heroes in the Presbyterian church. Calvin says this, we must realize that at whatever time we are baptized, we are once for all washed and purged for our whole life. You don't need to go do penance after baptism. Just recall the promise made to you there in the waters. He goes on, he says, for the Lord promises forgiveness of sins in baptism. Receive it and be secure. The Westminster Divines, who wrote for us the Westminster Confession, again, we use it in the Presbyterian Church, in their directory for the public worship of God, they say this, the grace and virtue of baptism is not tied to that very moment of time wherein it is administered but rather the fruit and power of baptism reaches to the whole course of our lives. One of the great uh, British theologians, William Perkins, put it this way. He said, For although baptism be but once administered, yet that once testifies that all men's sins, past, present, and to come, are washed away. The Belgic Confession puts it this way, Baptism is profitable not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our entire Lies. So there you have it. All of these reformers testify to the same truth. That when God makes His promise of baptism to us, this promise of forgiveness in the waters of baptism, it is a perpetual promise. It is a promise that we carry with us, that sticks with us wherever we go and whatever we do. So when you sin after your baptism, as of course we all do many times every day, how should we respond? Run back to the promise of cleansing made to you in your baptism. Remind God of your baptism. Plead your baptism before God. God, you must be faithful and just to forgive me. I'm one of your baptized children washed in the blood of Christ. And when you have your doubts and your struggles, remind yourself of your baptism. 
and be assured, find the comfort of the gospel there. You know, that's really what weekly absolution is about. You know, every Sunday we get down on our knees and confess our sin, and then we rise up. And, and I, as God's pastor, as God's spokesman, declare you to be forgiven. Like today, words from Calvin. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. Okay, you know what that is? You know what's really happening there in those words of absolution? That is a weekly reminder of your baptism. I don't prescribe penances for you to go do. I remind you of the promise of forgiveness God has already made to you in your baptism. See, remembering your baptism is really a way of preaching the gospel to yourself. You know, we like to sing the little kid song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's wonderful. But we could also sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for my baptism tells me so. Your baptism is God communicating to you a promise of forgiveness. That's the promise made in baptism, a promise of forgiveness. But Peter talks about something else. He also talks about a gift. The other thing that happens in baptism, according to Peter, is the gifting of the Holy Spirit. We're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The water sprinkled symbolizes the blood of Christ. The water poured symbolizes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly the Holy Spirit works in people before baptism, and that's true of our children as well as adults. And certainly the Spirit continues His good work in people after baptism. But baptism is presented to us in Scripture as the definitive moment when we receive God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit accompanies the water. The Spirit works through the water. And that's why Christians have traditionally considered baptism, again, the beginning of the Christian life. In baptism, we are born of water and the Spirit, as John uh, chapter 3 puts it. Titus chapter 3 calls baptism the washing of rebirth. It's a new beginning. It's, it's a new birth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, the Spirit's baptism makes us members of Christ's body. Just as the Spirit hovered over the waters and the creation in Genesis 1 to give birth to the world, to shape and form the world, to order the world, to bring order out of the chaos. And just as the Holy Spirit symbolized by a dove fluttered above the waters of the flood in Noah's day to bring to birth a new world out of the old, a new world coming to birth out of the womb of the old, so in the waters of baptism, the Spirit makes you a new person, a new creation. Baptism is the beginning point. Baptism is not magical, but it is miraculous. Every time you see a baptism, you are witnessing a miracle. Baptism is symbolic, but it's not a mere symbol. It is a gift. It is an effective gift of grace. It is a symbol that brings the reality with it. God attaches the reality to the symbol. So it's not an empty symbol. It's a full symbol and an effective symbol. In baptism, God gives us His Spirit. In baptism, God really comes to dwell in us. In baptism, God comes to remake you, to transform you. God, by His Spirit, now lives in you. And you know this because you've been baptized. Now, you know, it would be really foolish to say all of these things, to say that baptism could do all of these things or accomplish all of these things, that baptism was merely a human work. You know, Martin Luther asked that question, how can water do such wonders? Well, water can't. But baptism isn't a mere human work. It is a divine work. 
In baptism, the Father pours out His Spirit through the Son. You can't do this to yourself. You can't transform yourself this way any more than Eustace Scrub could undragon himself. Baptism is a work of God. And I'll give you an analogy that will help you see this is not as unfamiliar to you as you might think. You know, All of us have been to weddings before, but you've never been to a wedding where you heard a divine voice speaking from heaven declaring this couple to be husband and wife. No, what you hear is the pastor's voice declaring them to be husband and wife. But when Jesus talks about marriage in Mark chapter 10, He says, let not man separate what God has joined together. God joined this man and this woman together and made them one flesh. God formed this covenant between them. He used the declaration of the pastor to make it so. But God stands behind it and God works it. God makes it happen. In the same way in the baptism, you don't see Jesus descending from heaven and taking the baby up into His arms and baptizing the baby Himself. What you see is the pastor holding the baby and splashing water on the baby's head. But just as in a wedding, it's God working through human agency. So in baptism, it's really God Himself working through human agency. Jesus is the baptizer. We talk about John the Baptist. We should talk about Jesus the Baptist. He is the baptizer. Baptism is God's act and God's gift. And that's why there is great comfort in baptism. That's why baptism can assure us. You know because of your baptism, just as surely as the water was poured over you, so God's Spirit has been poured into you. Baptism is God's action. It's God's activity. And by the way, this too is why Peter can say, as he does in Acts 2, the baptism's promise is to you and to your children. If baptism were merely a human work, I suppose it would make no sense to baptize infants. It would be only for the strong and the mature and the rational and the capable. But because baptism is God's work and God's gift and God's promise, infants can be baptized as well. So we had little Thomas Eaton this morning. He slept through the whole thing. <laughs> but that is a perfect picture. Because none of us can do this activity ourselves. It's God's work. It's God's doing. In fact, when Peter says there in Acts chapter 2 that this promise is to you and to your children, he's really just restating the common covenant formula from the Old Testament where God says to His people again and again, I will be a God to you and to your children. And so for example, in Isaiah 59, the Lord says, this is My covenant with you. I think this is really ultimately talking about the New Covenant, but God says, this is My covenant with you. My Spirit who is on you will also be with your children. My Spirit is in you and My words are on your lips and My Spirit and My words will be with your children as well. That's the promise of Isaiah 59. And how does God put His Spirit upon our children? He does so in baptism. You see, any God worth His salt, so to speak, is going to be a God who claims children. God's always claimed children. This is as much true of the biblical God as it is of false gods. You know, when Molech, if Molech was your God you know, in, in, in ancient times, Molech claimed your children. And in that case, it was really bad news because it meant you'd have to sacrifice one of your children to the fires. But Molech, just like every other God, claimed children. The true God, the living God, claims children. But He claims them in love. He claims them in grace. 
See, when, a, when, when Christian parents bring a child to be baptized, you know what's really happening? To bring your child for baptism is really a confession of parental powerlessness. Parents who bring their children for baptism are saying, Lord, I can't convert this child. I can't transform this child. I can't save this child. My child needs Your Spirit. My child is really Yours. Lord, I can't handle this child. I want You to have this child. Lord, I'm giving You this child and I'm trusting that You will give this child Your Spirit. That's what happens when we baptize a child. You see, this baptism is God's work. It's God's promise and God's gift. Again, passage after passage after passage in the New Testament describes baptism this way. Baptism is, you could say, the liquid Gospel. It is the Gospel in liquid form. It is the Gospel in watery form. We also get the Gospel in edible form. The Gospel comes to us as bread and wine. The Gospel comes to us as words and paper and ink. And the Gospel comes to us as water. Romans 6, just to to go a little bit further with this. Romans 6, Paul says that in baptism we are united to Christ in His death and resurrection. And so Paul says, in baptism we die to sin and we rise to a new kind of life, a life of righteousness. It's as if Paul's saying, before your baptism you were a dragon filled with greed and every other evil desire. And baptism made you a boy again. It, it rehumanized you. You died to the old and you came alive in a new way. Paul says they are in baptism we're united to Christ. Baptism is like a wedding ceremony in which we are joined to Christ. And so then Paul goes on in Romans 6 to say, live in light of your baptism. Can you go on living in sin so that God's grace might abound? No. Why? Because you've been baptized. And in your baptism, you died to sin and now you are alive to righteousness. Because you've been baptized, we should reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Paul's showing us there in Romans 6, in baptism we get a new identity, and a new status, and a new story. And really he's saying, look, your, your whole life as a Christian is simply living out what you've been given in baptism. It's a matter of becoming who you already are. You know, Be who you are really is what Paul's saying in Romans 6. You're baptized, so live like it. You're united to Christ, so live it out. Remember who you are as God's baptized children, as those who have been united to Christ. In baptism, you've entered into this new story. Christ's story is now your story. His death and resurrection story is now your story. You've been enfolded into His history, so now it's yours. And Paul explains what that means in Romans 6. He shows that it means we've got to reorient our bodies. The the way we live in our bodies now is different. Paul says in Romans 6, because we've been baptized, we're to offer up the members of our bodies to God's service. Baptism claims and consecrates the body for God. I mean, think about that. We've talked about the the Spirit coming to dwell in our hearts through baptism. But baptism is also very bodily. Water is applied to the body. And so now Paul's saying your body is holy. Use it in holy ways. Your body is now sacred space. Your body is now sacred space. Your body is a temple. And so guard it. And use it accordingly. One more here and we're done. Galatians 3. Paul says, as many as have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. 
Paul here is really drawing on the Old Covenant ordination ceremony for priests where they put on new clothing and became priests. Paul here is saying baptism is like an ordination ceremony. It's putting on the priestly garment of Christ Himself. And he goes on to say, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So in baptism, we not only become priests of God clothed in the vestment of Christ, the, the, the very garments of Christ Himself, we also become sons of God sharing in the sonship of Christ. In baptism, you enter into Abraham's family. And if you're a member of Abraham's family, then of course you're a member of God's family. And so what is Paul saying about baptism in Galatians 3? He's saying, look, baptism is your ordination certificate, which says you're now a part of God's royal priesthood. And it's also your adoption certificate, which says you are now part of God's family. And so you have a right to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Now, I understand this raises all kinds of questions. All kinds of questions here. Some might ask, you know, does this mean that you have to be baptized to be saved? Can God save someone without baptism? Well, of course God can. God is God. He can do what He wants. Ordinarily, God uses baptism. I think that's what we see here. Ordinarily, God has bound Himself to baptism and to the other means of grace. He ordinarily includes baptism in the process of salvation. But he doesn't have to. If someone believes in Jesus but then is somehow hindered from being baptized, God can work around that. God's not constrained. On the other hand, somebody might also want to ask the question, does this mean that all the baptized are saved? That every single baptized person, head for head, is going to be saved eternally? Well, no, obviously not. Baptism is God's gift and God's promise. It is an effectual means of grace. But it's also conditional. It's a kind of conditional offer. The one baptized must believe and he must obey. Your baptism obligates you in a whole new and deeper way to trust God. To live according to the good beginning made in your baptism. That's true though, sadly. There are some who are baptized who don't believe the promise made to them. They don't believe what their baptism says about them. They don't believe the Word of God given to them. In baptism, There are some who are given these gifts in baptism, but then they reject those gifts and throw those gifts away. So no, baptism is not some kind of automatic guarantee of salvation no matter how you live. Certainly not. In fact, Scripture is clear again and again to fully realize all the privileges offered to you in your baptism. You have to trust God. And you have to obey God. You have to live like a disciple. What God offers and bestows in baptism can only be received and enjoyed by faith. Just as with the preaching of the Gospel, just as with what God offers us in the Lord's Supper, it must be received by faith. But don't think of that as you know, kind of the fine print in the contract that cancels out the, the good news and voids baptism of all its meaning. No, the good news is that in baptism along with the Word and the Supper, God gives you everything you need to live a faithful Christian life. Yes, God demands a response. He demands a response of faith and obedience. But through these means, God also enables us to make that response. And that response includes believing what God says about your baptism and believing what your baptism says about you. 
This is God's good news to us. We cling to it by faith. In baptism, God promises you forgiveness. He gifts you with the Holy Spirit. He unites you to Christ. He adopts you and ordains you. In baptism, He saves you. In baptism, God gives you all you could ever need because He gives you Himself. Now go live according to the good beginning made in your baptism. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. We thank You for Your salvation. The salvation Christ won for us on the cross. We thank You for the way this salvation comes to us. Through the Word and in baptism and in the Supper. For through these means, Lord, You give us Yourself. You give us all the gifts of Christ and all the gifts He won for us and all the gifts of Your Kingdom. May we receive You and Your Son and Your Spirit through these means by faith and so live accordingly and bring You glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.